So if college isn't about getting a job necessarily, what if somebody has a really cool job and you wonder how they got that job? Of course, a lot of people tell you there's rarely a really clear path to getting a certain job, and I think my guest on this episode makes that point in her own story. As an international correspondent for NPR, there's fame, albeit that of the NPR variety, versus like NBA or Rockstar. Adventure, danger, the opportunity to help drive the discussion on the world's most intractable conflict. It's pretty cool. So what kind of person gets a job like that? Let's find out with Emily Harris, Jerusalem correspondent for NPR. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome again, I'm Davin Sweeney. I'm a college admissions counselor, and this is The Crush, a podcast where interesting people talk to me about the complex world of college, and college admissions. There's some other stuff to see at www.crushpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter, kinda, at crushpod, and you can leave a voicemail at 503-86-CRUSH. I'd prefer that. That would be cool. So one of the things I wish I had a better grip on in college is understanding, on the one hand, I shouldn't trip that much about the future of my career, but also in those moments that I did, I wish I knew better how the career arc works for people in the jobs I was interested in. I feel now that I could just never really wrap my head around how to build a career period, but really in the thing that I wanted, which at the time was becoming a filmmaker. That's what I wanted to do in college. It always seemed really abstract to me, and it seemed that people who had those jobs had almost forgotten how they got there. So I talked to a person today who, as I say in the interview, is the only person who has the job that she has. And if you're like me and you listen to NPR, then you've heard Emily Harris's work. Emily Harris, NPR News, Jerusalem. If you're like me in high school, then you think NPR is for dorks and parents, and I'm here to tell you that's dumb and you should stop thinking that way. Anyways, I wanted to explore that college is not a job training center per se. It is possible to study things in college that you're interested in and then get a job that's great that you didn't plan on getting when you were in college purely by following your academic passions. I think Emily is a great example of this. I was able to talk to her from her home slash office, as she calls it, in Jerusalem via Skype. So please pardon that the connection is a little spotty at points. And another heads up, this is my very first interview I did for the podcast, so go easy on me. We talk about what it was like to move abroad for a job, what she needs to know to be good at her job, how it works, how the landscape of media is changing, and how parenting is like torture in the best possible sense, of course. Where, where are you right now? I'm in Jerusalem in my apartment slash office. Okay, so there isn't a brick-and-mortar NPR outfit in Jerusalem. Um, it's uh, my, our spare bedroom. <laughs> yeah, so anybody, you know, any, any bigwigs that come through, like executives from NPR, they crash with you at your place? Um, last... Does that happen all the time? That probably happens all the time, right? Um, I've actually, after the first month I got here, within a month, my, not my editor, but the boss of the foreign desk came and brought the vice president of news. And so I was like, wow, I don't really know what's going on, but let me show you around. <laughs> and then my editor came last year. And then now we have a new vice president of news. And um, I think, but I, we also have a new CEO. I think the CEO may, may be coming through sometime this fall. Exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, you better go linen shopping. <laughs> right. I mean, well, they don't actually see me. They, they a hotel. Oh, okay. Well, the, I guess that makes sense. Well, let's get into it. Okay. All Ask right. Me. All right. Um, 
right off the bat, I would just like to have, however, you know, pander to your alma mater here. Check this out. Oh, look at you. How about that? Bula, bula. Anybody that's listening to this would have no idea what I just did, but I have a Yale mug here because I happen to know that that's where you went to college. And I'd like to say that anybody that I talk to, I just go and get the cup from their alma mater. But this is it. I have this and I got one from my own school and that's it. This was given to me by somebody else. But um, does this give you warm fuzzies to see this Yale uh, coat of arms or whatever that is? Yeah, I really did have a good time at college, actually. <laughs> well, I <laughs> so hope so. I warm fuzzies, but but it was a good it was a good four years. So let me back up a little bit. You and I know each other in sort of a, an interesting way. You were a student of my father's at Lincoln High School in Portland, Oregon. Do you remember those days and sort of how that you know your your time in high school leading up to uh, becoming uh, a college student? Um, yes, college was much harder than high school, and yeah. actually. You know, I did go to a school where a lot of people had come from college prep schools where they, you know, boarding prep schools and they were way better prepared for studying than I was um, just in terms of the ability to synthesize a great deal of a great deal of information and know like, you know, what to read and not what to read, what to read and how to prep for exams and stuff like that. So it took me a little bit of time to catch up. Not to the knowledge or the curiosity or that sort of stuff, but just like how to deal with the massive amount of information that you were supposed to be able to manage. Yeah. You know, I'm basically, I'm talking to you because, you know, I think that you have a pretty fascinating job, don't you? I do think it's fascinating. I think it's one of the best jobs there is. I mean, I haven't had that many other jobs, um, a few, uh, and they had some interesting things as well. Even like being a stock clerk at a department store was had some interesting moments. But yeah, no, I think this is one of the best jobs on the planet. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's not the job that everybody has. You're the one that has the job that you have. What's the, your job title? I am an international correspondent for NPR based in Jerusalem. So that's, is that on your business card? That's a lot. Of, that's a lot. You know, I've run out of business cards. <laughs> you have to reorder them. Ask the CEO to bring them by when he comes to visit. I probably pick them up. I'm going to go through the headquarters this summer. I'll probably pick some up. All right. Yeah. That's always, that's always a pain when you run out of business cards. <laughs> yes. yeah. So people start not to really believe you are who you are, which is hilarious because you could, of course, get a business card. Right. <laughs> With anything on it, anytime you want it. But for you, if it, if it was like one of those, you know, if it was the good old days, you could just have a fedora with the thing in there that says press. Right. Maybe you should try to bring that back. So um, what's it like to work for NPR? I've mostly worked in public broadcasting. I've worked some in other medium. I've, I've worked in television. I've worked some in print. Um, I've worked domestically, internationally. Mostly it has been in public broadcasting. Um, one of the things that I have liked most about NPR is that um, still the newsroom is um, the newsroom is the place for news, and it's it's you don't want to be completely isolated anymore. Right. Like uh, in terms of are we making money? Are we you know are we are people listening to what we're doing? Are we changing in a way that keeps up with the way people are listening? Are we you know, meeting? audience's expectations mm -hmm. for the way they hear stories now. So you don't want to be, you know, isolated at all. But it's really a place where you get to do your job, which is be a reporter. And that is really lucky. Um, and there's a lot of demands. I mean, there's across journalism, there's been increasing demands on every reporter to be 
more skilled in more ways to pre present a story, you know, not just radio, but you need to be able to write copy that is for reading. It's not a script on the web. You need to be able to take pictures. You need to be, you know, facile on, on social media. And so there's a whole lot more demands just in general, but, um, working for NPR, I found that, I mean, basically I get to do my job, which is cover my beat. And my beat is geographically established because right. I'm in Jerusalem. My responsibility is the West Bank, Israel, and Gaza. Um, I just have to stay aware of what's going on in the Middle East. And I will, I mean, Jordan is also, you know, in my periphery. There's, it's in other people's periphery as well. So I've done some reporting from there. Yeah. And then I need to be able to jump in if necessary, like going to Ukraine, uh, I guess it was two two years ago now, last year, anyway, going to Ukraine when the, when the fighting there broke out originally. Yeah. Um, so 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 that's an easy way to to establish a beat. Um, but as far as making like, getting your own feet on the ground and getting familiar with a beat when it's someplace that been before, because um, I moved to Jerusalem having only visited once to look mm -hmm. for an apartment. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so basically you do exactly what you said. You meet people, you talk to people, you read, you call people up. And it's funny when you say fearless because um, there, there's sometimes for me, it's um, I'm more scared. It's not really scared isn't the right word, but I'm more putting off, you know, procrastinating about calling somebody I don't know, um, then I am like, you know, going to some dangerous place or something like that. Yeah. Um, the first one you can sort of, you can sort of, you know, come up with some reason why you're going to call them tomorrow. Um, uh -huh. uh, cause you're just not in the mood to, I don't know, force yourself on a stranger again and ask questions. Although that's the fun part of the work. It's also, um, sort of a different social interaction than you have with most people. Yeah. Um, if you're going into some, you know, crazy, dangerous place, you basically have to go because that's what's going on right now. So, so there's different kinds of fearlessness there. So let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit about where you went to college and the experience there. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if you recall that process of picking a place to go and how that happened. So, yes, I do recall it very clearly, and I must say I was not terribly informed about, well, I was not terribly well informed about the college selection process. Um, I knew I wanted to leave Portland. I knew I wanted to be far away, or relatively far away, <laughs> um, for a, a variety of reasons. I understand the impulse. Well, mostly, honestly, it was because I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like, Oregon was a very ambitious place for a lot of people. I didn't feel uh -huh. like there was a drive there to get better, try new things, you know. Interesting. So I wanted to, I am. have always been, I mean, I, I love new. I love like, oh, I haven't done that before. Let me try. Yeah. So, um, but the, <laughs> the, the first time I, I'm sort of embarrassed at how ill-informed I was now, but the first time I really... Yale kind of crept into my consciousness was I studied acting for a long time, you know, as a kid, mm -hmm. whatever, drama school. And yeah. um, I was a junior, I think. And there was a, a girl who was a year ahead of me. So she was a senior. Maybe I was a sophomore. She was a junior. She was asking our coach, where our acting coach, where she should go to college. And Yale came up as a place that had a good drama school. And I was still... That's putting it mildly. <laughs> well, I they think. have yeah. a good graduate 
drama school. Okay. No undergraduate drama school. They have a really vibrant okay. undergraduate theater. Right. You know, so it's like Sigourney Weaver and Jodie Foster yeah, and, exactly. you know, all these guys, right? Some pretty good names. Exactly. So I was Meryl Streep. playing with the idea I mean, yeah. of being a, going into into acting, but I wasn't mm-hmm. sure. And so I wanted to keep my my options open, acting, okay. academics. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like a place I could do, you know, I could keep both paths open. So that's when I decided I wanted to try to go to Yale. And uh, that's why I looked into it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and and then you switched gears fairly dramatically, it seems, away from from acting. What did you major in? I majored in Soviet studies. Yeah. Um, Why? I had studied Russian in high school and Uh I hadn't finished learning it yet. The only reason I took it in high school, took Russian in high school was um, I'd already been taking Spanish, and I kept taking that. But my older sister took Russian from this really great mm-hmm. teacher, very energetic, um, very funny, and um, we didn't even start learning the Cyrillic alphabet until like six weeks in. He would just point at things and say, "Что это? Это стол? Нет, это лампа. Это лампа нет. Это стол." And so we would just repeating and repeating and repeating. And I have no and, idea uh, what also- you just said, but it sounded really serious. <laughs> it yeah, was very right. serious. Cold yeah. stuff. But also we went to the Soviet Union on yeah. a high school trip, and that was my first trip out of the country. What and, year would that have been? Uh, 1984. So five years later, I believe, is when the Berlin Wall came down. Is that correct? 89? Yeah, that's okay. right. No, it was 84, 89. So it was a, it was a tremendously fascinating yeah. experience, but it was also – I mean, it was an ex- that country, like you said, went away. And so it was this moment in time to be there. And I actually did go back several times wow. before it fell apart uh, to study and also just to work and stuff while it's still in the Soviet Union. But that, that, uh, that was really interesting to me, that totally different system of government, knowledge about the world, approach, attitude, history. Um, and so that's part of what drew me to Soviet studies as well. I will note that my degree is in Soviet studies and it was awarded in 1989, the year the Soviet Union fell apart. Wow. <laughs> so it wasn't very, uh, it should have been <laughs> Russian studies or something. I was apparently not really in tune with what was going on at that level. <laughs> so how did, I mean, did you, did you study abroad in college? Did you, did you go again? I, w- I did spend a semester in the Soviet Union in Le- Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. So how does, you know, one of the things that, you know, I kind of want to try to get um, people to think about a little bit, which is which can be a challenge sometimes, especially in this day and age when, you know, the uh, the cost of college is what it is, the, you know, the the, the looming uh, debt uh, picture that families are feeling like they're going to have to put up with or are putting up with, you know, that getting a job after you graduate is just critically important. Uh, it seems more and more all the time. And. So that's how a lot of families sort of think about school, right? And think about college is, you know, this is what's going to prepare me for what I do after I graduate and to get the job that I get. And I think that obviously, you know, there's there's a huge truth to that, that, you know, in a large part, what you do in college is absolutely going to inform what you do, um, you know, when you graduate. But, you know, you didn't major in, you know, radio broadcasting or, you know, um, Middle Eastern politics even. You know, you, you, you had a general neighborhood of study that seems to overlap a little bit with what you do now, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those experiences, you know, prepared you for what you do now. Given that it isn't this, you know, direct, like, I'm going to major in, you know, Jerusalem corresponding. Right, 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 right. If there were that. <laughs> if there were, That's course. right, yeah. Um, I did have... 
an idea when I went to college that I was interested in journalism and I was interested in being an international correspondent. Um, and I didn't completely abandon drama because, you know, broadcasting, you do use your your voice and whatnot. Um, but I think in the case of journalism, and this may have changed since then, but I think in the case of journalism, learning the nuts and bolts of the craft wasn't as important in college as refining critical thinking skills, gathering a body of knowledge, becoming somewhat not, I mean, I certainly was not an expert in Soviet studies when I graduated, but I had some depth of knowledge about a certain yeah. part of the, the world. And that actually is what led me to getting a job in journalism. I, um, I did learn sort of the nuts and bolts stuff in, in summer internships, which in my case were unpaid. Um, I lived at home with my parents during the college summers, you know, worked at a local television station and at a local uh, newspaper. But I actually did no journalism work in college, even though Yale has a great daily newspaper. Um, So it was developing the skills that applied in that job. And I think that they... You know, I'm not sure anybody would hire me at this point for anything but a journalism journalist. But at some point, I think those skills were morphable into a lot of different career fields. So I'm not really sure. There are more people who go to journalism school today, but um, but at the time, at that time, and I think this may still be true. Although journalism is changing a lot very quickly, um, but the journalism school degree was not was not necessary. I mean, I um, didn't I didn't go on to get any further degrees. I stopped at a BA and started working, and uh, and I had enough to do at that point. I had enough to do what I what I wanted to work in because it was it was just it was critical thinking skills. It was curiosity, which is something you can develop if you've got you know if you've got some some natural bit of bent to that. It was clear communications. Um, and the way that the actual field of study translated into a job was, um, I, uh, after college, I worked with Russian immigrants back in Portland for three years and also volunteered at a local radio station. So learned a lot of radio nuts and bolts. Then I decided I wanted to go back to the Soviet Union. I did not have a job. Um, but I went back to there, I went back there. I went to Moscow and I started knocking on doors of, uh, Western news outlets, you know, the LA times, the New York times, I knocked on NPR's door at that point. Um, and I got a job as a researcher and then that gave me an in to do some freelancing and it just built up from there. You know, one of the things that people like me in college admissions are, are, are telling people who say, you know, who ask us, you know, how am I going to, how do I get, how do I make myself look, you know, interesting to you in the college admissions process? And one of the words that keeps it coming up again and again is passion. You know, we want to see the thing that you're passionate about. And, you know, I uh, uh, would like to believe that uh, a critical mass of, you know, 17 year olds have a really hard time 
telling anybody what what it is that they're truly passionate about, you know, as relates to academic subject matters or or, or what's going to happen to you in college. I think it's difficult to to identify it at this age or really to have an expectation that somebody at 17 can really tell you what it is that they're, you know, deeply passionate about to the extent that we feel like it's going to make a contribution to college life. But I wonder, were you, what were you passionate about at age 17 do you you know and and do you feel like you continued to uh pursue that passion when you got to college that's an interesting question I actually struggled for a lot of my life feeling like I was passionate about anything um see and I feel like I wonder if that's I mean, I, I feel like that's probably pretty common. But I feel I, that I feel that way regularly. <laughs> but the way I think that passion reveals itself is not so much what you are consciously interested in, but it's what pushes your emotional buttons. Um, I think over time I've realized I'm passionate about um, ideas and things that are um, like ideas that are important to me, things about life that are important to me, sort of somewhat abstract. But those are the things that. I'll defend, you know, without even realizing I'm getting riled up, you know? And so, so I, I think that if you think about passion, like, you know, I love ice skating, I'm passionate about ice skating. I mean, maybe that's true for somebody because of the way they feel when they do it, or they just, you know, find it fascinating to, um, study the different moves that people make. And maybe it's about the physics, maybe it's just about the physicality. But um, another way to, to discover it, I think, is, is what, what, gets, what pushes your buttons, you know? Um, what gets you riled up when somebody says something that contradicts, you know, a belief that you hold? And, and so, I mean, you could say maybe I was passionate about Russian, and I really do really do enjoy Russian language when it's spoken well, or, you know, when I hear it or when I speak it well, um, I really do find pieces of politics and history of that fascinating. Also in the Middle East, I can find almost anything interesting in almost any story, you know, if you just scrape away a little bit, there's like a wow factor. Like, I didn't know that, but, but real passion, I think for me, isn't about one specific thing, but it's um, more about, I don't know, ideas about like, for example, I'm very passionate about the freedom of information. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. also is very helpful in my work as a journalist. Sure. And it's and, it, and along those lines that, you know, you're talking about digging away and finding interesting stories and then the freedom of information. I think the last story that I heard that you re- report on, I was on the bus to go pick my daughter up from daycare and it was like, there, there she is. You were talking about, um, Facebook, I believe, and uh, I believe that within the Palestinian community to, you know, criticize people, um, you know, using that social media. Is that correct? That's right. It was a it was a story about um, a couple of incidents recently where Palestinian security officials have arrested people for putting up posts that were critical of the Palestinian authority. This also happens in Israel. Um, This story happened to focus on a couple of stories, a couple of cases there. You moved, as we've established, a long ways away from home to take this job. Um, uh, what was that like? Because home. you, w- ah, good question. There we go. Um, I the question I asked myself as a transplant, of course, as well. But um, you know, you, I guess it, you worked for a long time in Oregon public broadcasting, um, and you know, had established a lot of you know um, 
you know, your credentials there. And so I just wonder about moving abroad and taking a job abroad away from, you know, let's say your, 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 uh, area of greatest familiarity, you know, what that's like and how you had to kind of prepare to become, you know, a, a, a citizen abroad. Well, I actually, by that time, I mean, I spent since, since the end of college, I've spent more time probably out of the country than in the country, uh, mm-hmm. three being the U S I, um, I told you I spent three years in Portland after graduating from college working with Russian mm-hmm. friends. Then I moved to Russia for two years. Then I moved to LA for two years. And then I was in Washington, D.C. for uh, uh, like, I think about three or four years. And then in Berlin for five years. Then to wow. Portland for five years. And then here in, to Jerusalem, where I have been for two years. So actually, and the, so the time I worked at Oregon Public Broadcasting was a three or four year stint um, helping start a, a new talk show there. And um, did you win an award? Oh, um, the talk show did win some awards. Yeah. When I was when I was there. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, we won several Gracie's uh, and we did uh, OPB won uh, a Peabody, which is the highest yeah. on, in broadcasting. It, it, our, our, our talk show did a little bit of supportive work for that, but the real, the real genesis of that was the newsroom director, Eve Epstein, and the reporters. It was a great series on um, poverty in, mm-hmm. uh, during the recession. Yeah. Um, uh, I also contributed to a NPR Peabody on the Iraq war coverage back in 2003. Wow. Um, but uh, so actually by the time I left Portland, I was, um, I was, I was kind of ready to go yeah. somewhere else again. Yeah. And so did you, did the, you know, the, the opportunity come up, somebody was, was vacating the post or, or, or how did, how did you end up in Jerusalem? Well, actually I was, um, interested in a job in Moscow um, okay. and NPR had a job opening in Moscow. And so I decided to actually go back to Moscow on my own dime to, um, to, to visit again, which I hadn't been there for like 10 years, and to see if it was someplace I did want to live again. Russia had changed a lot um, in that past decade. Sure. And I had a great visit, um, but decided that actually I didn't want to live there at that point in my life. And um, it was about a year later that NPR started looking for someone for the Jerusalem Post um, because the previous correspondent um Lourdes Garcia Navarro was, was leaving. So they were actually doing a little recruiting as well as advertising. Um, so I talked to, you know, an exec there at that point and then decided I was really interested in that post. And luckily it worked out. Very cool. You're covering, I mean, it's, it's one of the hottest areas of, of political and religious and social and cultural activity. I mean, it's just, it's a, you know, the, the, the Israel and Palestine conflict is one of the most, you know, entrenched and, uh, complicated issues of our time, you know, and I wonder how it is that you kind of, or, or do you feel like at this point, I mean, obviously you're a seasoned journalist, but do you feel like you have to keep your, you know, politics at bay, uh, when you are uh, reporting the story or are there things that you feel like you need to do that you need to be conscious of to maybe make sure that you're being, uh, uh that you're reporting objectively? No, I mean, your politics don't have any place in any of the work you do anywhere. The NPR code of ethics, I mean, this is something you give up as a journalist. We're forbidden from um, expressing political views in certain forums, um, covering, you know, attending 
rallies that we might be covering. There's, I can't quote you the ethics chapter and verse, but it's, um, I mean, it's really, it's like we make a conscious point of, of, uh, not being, not being the story. Um, and that's definitely true here. Um, because it is a place where, you know, passions run high and there's a, then a lot at stake for a number of years. And of course, you know, I mean, NPR is a private nonprofit, but the U S is a, is a player in the, in the game here. And so the American media is seen by both Palestinians and Israelis as, uh, um, as a tool for their message. And so I think that one of the biggest challenges in this place is to you know, get beyond that. Do people there listen to your stories? Uh, some of them. There's a lot of Americans here, um, both Israeli and Palestinian, and so they're familiar with NPR. Um, they don't air in Israel. I mean, obviously, you can download the right. app, NPR One, um, and I encourage people to do that. But so some people do, yeah. You mentioned some pretty uh, some places that are experiencing a lot of violence. Is this where you found yourself reporting from? Have you ever yourself felt like you were in danger? Uh, yeah. Can, I guess, see, I need to stop asking yes or no questions. <laughs> I think this is one of the things that I need to learn here. Emily, I'm still learning to be a, a radio guy here. So uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, one is actually sort of funny. Um, as part of uh, reporting from a conflict zone for insurance purposes and as well as, you know, practical training, um, news organizations that can afford it now usually send their reporters to what's called um, co combat zone training or something like that. I forget what it is. Uh, basically, you go for five days and you learn how to walk through a minefield and you pretend to get kidnapped and you have these very realistic first aid training things where people have mm -hmm. fake blood shooting out of them and stuff like that. And um, basically, one of the things you learn is how to be aware of your surroundings and to recognize your options before something happens. You're just like slightly aware. For example, you know, you might think, okay, what am I wearing that could be used as a splint? You mm -hmm. might think, uh, what's my exit if there's a car bomb at this side of the restaurant? So after doing that and then, uh, going back pretty soon after that to Baghdad, that's uh, sometime in 2000. 2003 or 2004, um, I was walking across a bridge. I'd left the green zone where I'd been at a news conference and I was walking across a bridge to get a cab. This was, I was in 2003 because it was pretty early on. I wouldn't have done this at other points um, because we, we did have uh, people who worked for NPR as drivers and so usually would somebody would pick me up, but the car was broken, I think. So I was walking across this bridge to get a cab and um, I was the only one out there walking. It was hot. It was in the middle of the day. And I remember starting thinking to myself, okay, what if somebody drives up and shoots at me? What, can, I, can I jump out, off the bridge if I'm shot in the arm? Could I survive in the water? Should I swim toward the green zone where there are U.S. soldiers? Would they shoot at me or would it be safer to swim away? <laughs> totally playing this whole yeah. through my uh, head and uh, – Anyway, I made it across the bridge <laughs> and, and I got a cab, but I was just the, just the procedure. This was actually funny because going through all this is supposed to make you feel more, uh, 
you know, capable of making a decision if in a, some emergency situation uh, comes up. But instead, like I basically panicked myself. <laughs> yeah, it just locked you up. But I would imagine that there probably been some that, that probably haven't been so fun. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I was in Gaza for a month last summer when the um, you know, Hamas had been shooting rockets and then Israel began a ground and air campaign. Yeah. And yeah. so I was in Gaza for uh, a lot of that. And, um, you know, I must say, I mean, scared is... When, when I'm working, basically, that has to go someplace else. Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, so don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, worst case scenarios or things like that. We did we definitely try to be, you know, conscious of what would be more risky, what would be less risky. Tried very much to not take any, um, you know, stupid moves. Um, but yeah, you can't, I can't really dwell too much on fear if I'm trying to cover something. What's your favorite part about your job? My favorite part, ah, well, the best thing hands down is to be able to ask people questions and have that be sort of, you know, the norm. That's the, that's the expected thing. And you can ask anything that you can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another part I really like is, and I just love like when I'm interviewing somebody and they say something and it's just so interesting or even just the way their voice sounds is so interesting. There's this little section. I just, sometimes I just want to listen to 20 seconds of tape over and over again. Um, but another piece I really like is, is wrestling it into a story. Mm-hmm. And um, that is uh, hard. There's certain like mountains that I have to climb every single story. Um, but it's great when it finally works. It's great. And that's really fun. And how do you, I mean, how, you know, how do you get that affirmation? Well, I mean, for one, I have to, you know, read all my stories to my editor. And so sometimes I actually don't get affirmation. Yeah, right. I get the opposite, <laughs> like, yeah, too long and it doesn't work anyway. Uh-huh. Um, when it, when it works, when yeah. you've managed to, you know, reporting a story, you're gathering a lot of information, you're talking to a lot of people. And if you just take a minute or two or a shower or a run to think about like, what's the point here? What are the, what are the main things people are really passionate about the, 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 the overarching themes here and combined with the little details that makes it come alive. How does it all fit together? The big, the top of the mountain for me is the story structure. Where do you start? Where does it go? Where does it end? And and I once I have that figured out, I always feel like I'm done, and that's really hilarious because I'm usually you know two to six hours away from being done. But if, as long as I've got that, I know where I'm going, what's being said in my mind. I think I'm finished. It's much easier after that. It's that wrestling to the what's what's the tale here? What's the story? Is everything important included? Yeah. So that's but it's fun. It is fun. Um, it's Sometimes being on deadline is fun. Uh-huh. Sometimes being on deadline is not fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes. Um, I often have to impose my own deadlines and being generally deadline averse, uh, that can be really, really challenging. Yeah. I have to really wrestle with myself. Um, so switching gears, I, you know, I, re- I looked at your, uh, your, your bio on uh, your NPR page and I, and I, I noticed a couple of things that really don't have 
seem to have much to do with your work at NPR. Just one of the things it says that, uh, you know, one of the aspects of her work that most intrigues her is why people change their minds and what inspires them to do so. And I found that really sort of apropos the, you know, the, the point of this podcast is that, you know, when people go to college, they do change their minds quite frequently. They do so during the course of the process of choosing where and why they want to go there. Um, you know, they often choose colleges based on the, you know, the, the, the ease with which they can change their mind uh, and, and go a completely different direction and still graduate in four years and stuff like that. So where does that come from? Uh, and and, and w- what can you say about what you've learned uh, as far as people changing their minds? Well, I think the reason it's so interesting to me is because when you stop doing one thing and start doing another thing, it means something's important to you. Something was important to you and something else is important to you now. Hmm. And understanding what's important to people and why is at the root of a whole lot of trying to understand why things happen in the world. Um Sometimes you can't get people to admit what's really important to them. But that, I think that's why it's interesting to me. If you actually abandon one worldview and shift to another, um, I think that's really fascinating. I mean, it might be a little more deep than switching majors. But even switching majors is deciding that this is more interesting to me. This draws me. There's, you know, there's bigger questions to me that are important about biology than there are about literature. Somebody might have the opposite view, you know, but so it's like, how do you draw meaning from life and mm-hmm. what's going to feed this meaning? And that's, I think that's what I'm interested in in stories. Um, it's not, I mean, that, I think that is behind, you know, who's the new president or why somebody's shooting somebody else. I mean, there's a lot of other things on top of that, but at the bottom somewhere, somebody's believing something, mm-hmm. um, whether they can even identify it or not. And then that like changing your mind about something is a, is um, a a time when your beliefs are revealed. It's really interesting. Um, And then the other thing that you said that you, that uh, I saw on your, on your uh, bio is that you are collecting stories about the most difficult parts of parenting. (laughs) Um, What can you tell me about that? It stems back to a real passion of mine, which is, um, which is, you know, the search for the best possible truth at the time. Um, and one thing I found when I became a parent was that there was a lot of, um, a lot of really, really hard things about being a parent and a lot of people didn't talk about them. And, um, so what I am doing with this project is just trying to collect really brutally honest stories about, um, how, horrible parenting can be. <laughs> How old are your kids? I have one daughter who's almost 10. Who's almost 10. She's eight years older than my daughter. Um, and yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I remember that one of the, one of the most difficult realizations of parenting was when my daughter was uh, somewhere between three and eight months old. And I was, you know, it was the middle of the night and I had obviously been up a lot. And this is, of course, I had a baby shortly after a couple months of working on and off in Iraq. And I was like, finally realizing why lack of sleep was a torture method yeah. you know, covering that Abu Ghraib uh, prison and so forth. Um, 
And so, so it's the middle of the night. I'm exhausted. She's not going to sleep. And I realize I'm like, I, I am the person here who is responsible for teaching this other creature how to relate to other human beings. I am supposed to teach her how to love. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. I am not <laughs> up to this job. Yeah. It was way too much of a responsibility. Um, and yeah, just, so just like this sort of run of the mill, you know, how pissed off you get when you're tired, when, you know, I mean, a kid is a kid, but there's just a lot of strains put on you. And, um, I think it can bring out the best and it brings out the worst. And the worst is often done in secret and everybody thinks nobody else has, is doing anything that is their own worst, you know, performance as a human being. And, um, so I wanted to, I wanted people to talk about that. That's really interesting, um, you know, because so much of what, you know, we experience uh, in this line of work is, is, is dealing with parents who are just hoping to God that they're making the right choice for their kids, right? And that they're, uh, it's, it's often a tug of war between, you know, giving them the right amount of room to make up their own minds and some of these things and then also guiding their decision making and knowing when to let go, you know, and of course it's from this, to, to go back to your, you know, parenting as war metaphor, you know, this is where the... Uh, the Wait, no, the... I don't say parenting is war. Say... <laughs> parenting is torture. torture. Yeah, torture. Well, let's say, you know, a, 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 an answer uh, uh, aspect of war, perhaps, um, uh, warlike, uh, you know, challenging in any way, uh, you know, that this is the, the, uh, the, the part of human civilization that gives us the phrase helicopter parents, right? Uh, you know, and, and to, to what, to what extent as parents are we going to, uh, uh, you know, really teach our children something like how to love other people versus algebra, right? And um, how much do they want our own help and how much do we have to uh, ignore what they want. <laughs> you know, when I was a freshman in college, um, the first week we had, um, two weeks where we could sort of evaluate any class and then we had to make up our minds. And right. so, um, it's great in some ways, but of course you're responsible for all the work from the beginning. So <laughs> if you, if you spend too much time shopping, you're screwed later. But, um, <laughs> I remember calling my parents and I couldn't decide what was the fifth class I was going to take. Was it going to be anthropology or was it going to be something else? And I was like, what do you think? And they're like, boy, you've got a dilemma. <laughs> I was like, yes. And, and they just, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't go there. They were like, good luck. I'm sure you'll do the right thing. <laughs> I remember feeling both like, uh, lost and relieved at the same time. Yeah. You know, uh, because I certainly didn't want to be depending on my parents actually to um, make up you know, my mind on what college classes to take. Um, but at the same time, I was like, okay, guess that's over. Right. Do you remember what you took? Um, I actually don't remember what the choice was in those two classes, but um, so I can't say which one I chose because I okay. don't remember what the other choice was. <laughs> but as your parents said, we're all sure it was the right one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you landed on your feet, Emily. And I'm sure that it course might have been archaeology. And I remember being super bored in that class, <laughs> if that was it, because we were digging up some Connecticut farmhouse, mm -hmm. but it wasn't very old. And we were finding things like rubber bands and Fisher Price <laughs> toys. And also, I was supposed to have noticed the difference in the soil and be fascinated by that. And I was not fascinated by the difference in the soil. Uh -huh. So, I figured out pretty fast that was probably not the career for me. Yeah, archaeological opportunities in New Haven are probably not the same as, <laughs> let's say, Jerusalem, 
please. Right. Yeah. Um, to maybe put it mildly, the um, so let me ask again, just to, to to come back to sort of media in general and preparation for a career. There, how do you see the media? You touched on it a little bit, but how do you see the media landscape changing? You know, um, over the course of the next you know, 10 years or so when students who are looking at college these days might be entering and, and getting into, uh, you know, positions of influence in the media. How do you see that landscape changing? And, you know, if you were them, what would you be doing now to sort of prepare for that? So the thing I'm most worried about is um, that people will become less and less knowledgeable about what sources they're reading and they'll care less and less and they will treat like a press release from an organization um, the same as they will, um, you know, a research report with multiple points of view and, you know, data analysis. And that really does worry me because, um, because that is ultimately the only thing, I mean, credibility in information is the only thing journalism really has to, to hang its hat on. So I would encourage, I would hope that people who are interested in journalism would also, you know, be interested in independently verifiable information, sourced information, um, on the record, um, you know, things like that. I think that, um, there's, I don't think that news and about the world and, um, learning about other people's experiences and ideas and, um, government policies, you know, which I mean, I, I do think a watchdog role for journalism is still a really interesting and important part of it. Um, I don't think that's actually going to go away. It's just more of a question of how is it going to be, um, how is it going to be produced? How much resources will be available to really spend the time to understand complicated things? And um, then how it's, how is it going to be presented? I mean, you know, I presume you could figure out a way and somebody's probably done it to, you know, um, tweak the meaning of all of the, um, you know, uh, State Department wires that were released through uh, Snowden's efforts, but yeah. you know, you probably you probably could, and people would get it that way. But it's so it's it's really the key thing I think if you are interested in journalism is a couple things. I mean, one, just be savvy about what platforms are out there. Um, don't be afraid of any new technologies, um, but don't think that that's what it's about because mm -hmm. that's just the just just the delivery mechanism. The story still has to be, I mean, I hope it's, I hope it's still going to be valued. And this is the question, you know, something like accurate, meaningful and uh, well told. So my two favorite NPR names, I don't even know if she's around anymore, but I sort of made a point of memorizing this. Duahli Sai Kautau. For NPR News, I'm Duahli Sai Kautau in Los Angeles. Yes, <laughs> she's got a great name. My other favorite one is Ophelia Quist Arcton. Ophelia Quist Arcton, NPR News, Accra. Who's your favorite NPR name? Uh, Emily Harris. What do you think? Obviously. The most boring Obvi name on. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily Harris, I like that name. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Very fun. See how nice she is. So a few takeaways here that I came back with. First of all, not only is home where the heart is, but so is the work more and more these days, quite literally, because she lives where she works and she and I actually have that in common. So do stuff you like and the rest follows. You can only train so much for something before your training no longer applies, right? 
As we heard in Emily's case, entire disciplines can disappear overnight as entire political boundaries disappear, admittedly. Yale's Soviet studies program was probably well positioned to absorb the end of the Soviet Union, but building on what my man Billy D said in episode one, which is totally how I address him during all of our phone calls that we constantly make to one another, uh, it goes to show you that studying a very specific idea in college can be complicated if you're banking on making that very specific thing your entire career. Another interesting thing is, you know, she says that there are more people in journalism school now than there were back when she was, you know, getting her feet wet. Fun fact, though, I looked and journalism or J school enrollment has declined for three consecutive years. The traditional media is in decline. Newspapers are getting sold left and right. Layoffs like crazy. So, yeah, perhaps it's an indicator that the field is not wide open to new membership, but also it's probably getting harder for the curriculum at J schools to keep up with the changes. So how do people in journalism schools prepare for the fact that their world is changing so rapidly and that the world that they're covering is changing so rapidly as well? It's probably another question for another interview someday, but suffice it to say the changing media landscape is a wonderful example of a professional world in which you can only be educated to focus on a particular part of it before the next thing you know, it's all gone as you knew it. So anyways, I'm going to stop talking now, but keep options open. Study what you love. Hopefully the rest follows. All right, I'm done. Check stuff out at the uh, website, www.crushpodcast.com. Twitter at CrushPod. Leave a voice message at 503-86-CRUSH. See you next time.